a joy to open God's word with you this morning. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to say a few brief words about the 4th of July. You all know what the 4th of July is. Our Independence Day, tomorrow, goes back to 1776, right? The Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. You'll notice here, uh, there are no stars and stripes on this stage or flying over this church. And let me just make a brief couple of comments. Uh, what does it mean to be citizens in the United States and also citizens in heaven? I think I'm a pretty patriotic person. Maybe like some of you, I uh, am going to fly my flag out in front of our house this weekend. I am... Uh, I'm kind of a history geek, to be honest. I enjoy uh, American history, in particular military history. I uh, am pretty pleased when I see our military forces used to, uh, to deter and to, uh, to deter evildoers, to defend those who are vulnerable. Sometimes the Navy is sent in to do disaster relief, and you just feel just really grateful that our military is doing that kind of good. I geek out talking to Nathan Palmer, to Ryan McDonough, to uh, Drew Van Heest about what they do in the Navy. I feel like I'm a fairly patriotic person. It's possible I might even have uh, shed a tear with a. So, how do we maintain a healthy perspective when it comes to our citizenship? And really, this gets down to potential idolatry. And ultimately, that's the word I want to use this morning for you as we talk about Independence Day. Ultimately, where is our hope and where is our citizenship? It's okay if you pledge allegiance to uh, the United States of America, but ultimately, where is your loyalty? What perspective do we as Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christians have in relation to this country? So I'm going to give you three things that we can do as good citizens of the United States. And it's okay to have a great barbecue tomorrow, to grill some burgers and hot dogs, and to sing the national anthem. But let's remember, first and foremost, uh, that our citizenship is in heaven. And Nathan was right in praying for our leaders, praying for our country, and expressing gratitude. That comes directly from the scriptures, 1 Peter 2.17. And that's the first of three things I want to remind us about. So our citizenship is in heaven, 1 Peter uh, 2.17. Pray and thank God that uh, we enjoy the freedoms and the rights that we have in this country. And may we not take those for granted. We are to honor and pray for our government leaders, Governor DeSantis and President Biden, um, and that those leaders would be used to restrain and withhold evil in our country. Number two, we must render to Caesar that which is Caesar. That's Matthew twenty two twenty. For Americans, this may include paying taxes, and we pay, we pay our share of taxes for sure. Um, and that's rendering to Caesar in our day that which is Caesar's. But I'd also present to you that voting, jury duty, and among other civic duties is also rendering to Caesar that which is his. Finally, number three is that reminder again that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 talks about this. It's okay to be patriotic. But where is our hope, friends? Is our hope in who sits in the Oval Office? Or is our hope ultimately in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I'm not here to uh, cast judgment on you. I want you to enjoy the 4th of July. Let's just encourage each other as we think rightly about Independence Day and living in this country.
Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, open it up or turn it on to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be talking about understand this, understand this. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this book to his disciple in the faith, Timothy, and this happened, this is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. He wrote this in about AD 67, just before his martyrdom. So he's in a Roman prison, and if you remember your, your New Testament history, this is uh, not the first time that Paul's been in prison, but this time it's different. This time he's in a cold, dark cell, and he's chained up. Before he was in, under house arrest, remember that? He was under house arrest, and he was able to clearly share the gospel with the Praetorian guards and others, but things are different now. Nero is persecuting Christians, and... The Apostle Paul is writing one of his last letters to his disciple in the faith, Timothy. He asks Timothy to hasten to see him. We don't know that Timothy made it before his death, but he longed to see him. Paul's admonishing Timothy not to grow weak spiritually, but to carry on this work that Paul started He's encouraging Timothy with concern to replace fear with power, with love, and a sound mind. We see that in 2 Timothy 1.7. And all throughout this book, we see references of suffering and persecution. More on that in a minute. Paul's challenging Timothy to hold on to the truth in 1.13 and 14, to be strengthened in 2 verse 1. And he's called him to preach the word in chapter 4, verse 2. So follow along as I read 2 Timothy 3. My ESV entitles this Godlessness in the Last Days. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 
the main idea here in this passage is that difficult days are coming, what to do, or excuse me, what to watch for, and how to respond. So I've got three points for us this morning. We've got a description of difficulty. We're going to talk about dedicated, being dedicated to discipleship. And number three, devoted to scripture. Description of the difficulty, dedicated to discipleship and devoted to scripture. Then we'll look at some application of what this means for us at Sunrise Community Church. It's interesting if you back up into uh, chapter 2, verse 15, one of the things that Paul is challenging Timothy at is to Present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You know, all of this is set on the stage that we are created as worshipers of the one true living God, right? That's what it means to be a human being made in God's image. And the mission of the church, we find, is Colossians 1.28, to present everyone complete in Christ. That's the goal. That's the target. That's what we're striving for. And all throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles describe what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Christ, to be that approved workman. Well, there's 18 items in this list. Paul starts off with this, understand this. In other words, he's saying, know this, or but know this. This is a stark warning to Timothy, not to allow fear of this oncoming peril and trouble to paralyze his efforts to preach the gospel and to make disciples. He talks about these last days, and there's several commentators who, who think, you know, is this, is this something happening in the future, or is this right now? Most commentators believe that these end times, these perilous times, are right now somewhere between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so we see that in the present tense there in, in verse 5, avoid such people. You see that? That's not talking about something future. That's happening right now. So I'm going to go quickly through this list. There's 18 items here. And it's true that some of these items on this list describe the world around us, our culture. But I want you to realize that what Paul's getting at here is he doesn't want these, these characteristics to infiltrate Christ's church. So yes, it's true as we read, we can see that these things describe the world around us, but friend, what we're called to do here is to realize these characteristics may infiltrate the church through false teaching, through hypocrisy, through... people who want to undermine the existence of Christ's church and the gospel. So just really quickly, we're not going to look at, we're not going to do a deep dive on these, these items, but uh, it's, a, it's a tough list. It all starts with misplaced love. So of course, we're looking at this description of difficulty. We see the last days. What are we to look for in this, in this difficulty? What are we searching for? And how could these things impact the church? So first of all, we see that they're lovers. I'm in verse 2. 
for people will be lovers of self. Selfishness. It's all about them, right? Lovers of money. Covetous. Unloving. And they'll love pleasure. So we see throughout all of these 18 items, we see this misplaced love. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus warns the church at Ephesus, you have left your first love. You remember that? So just quickly through this list, proud. They look down on others with contempt. They're beneath them. They're arrogant. They're boasters who arrogate honor, which does not fairly belong to them. They're abusive. They're disobedient to parents, disrespect and disobedient to earthly parents. They're ungrateful or unthankful. They're unholy. They lack personal purity. They're heartless without natural affection. They're careless towards, they're careless and regardless to the welfare of others. They're unappeasable. One of the translations there is they're truce breakers or implacable. They're slanderous. They're false accusers. They're without self-control. They have no control over their passions. They're brutal, inhuman, savage, merciless. They don't love good. They're hostile to every good thought and work. They're treacherous, traitors or betrayers. Judas Iscariot was marked as a traitor. They're reckless, they're heady or headstrong in words, thoughts, or actions. They're swollen with conceit, which means they're high-minded and blinded by pride. And then towards the end of verse 4, they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. People would sacrifice to procure a fleeting passion or pleasure. And get this, they have the appearance of godliness, but it's a complete hypocrisy. It's a sham, a complete show of observing outward forms of religiosity, but renouncing the power and influence over a heart and life dedicated to Christ. Honestly, this is the antithesis of what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Agape love, remember that? Famous love chapter. What is agape love? Selfless, sacrificial, and others focused. It's the complete opposite of this list of 18 items that we see here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Friends, do you remember the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us? Matthew chapter 22, 37, 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And what's the second one? It's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, verse 5 back in 2 Timothy 3 says that we are to avoid such people. Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by these various passions. Point number two is, so what do we do with this? So we're watching for these things. We're watching that these items, these characteristics would infiltrate the church. And now, the second part of our passage, we see that we are to be dedicated to discipleship. What does Paul say in verse 10? You, however, have followed my teaching. Follow me as I follow Christ, right? Do you remember the Great Commission? 
I've described it, uh, I think, here before. I think of it as a two-sided coin. Great Commission is a two-sided coin. On one side, we think of evangelism. That's the call to repent. It's the call to follow Christ. It's to turn away from sin and to pursue Christ-likeness, right? And in theological terms, we, uh, we talk about that moment being the moment of, of salvation, right? That's, that's, that's the great exchange that we sang about before. That's, that's Christ indwelling us through the Holy Spirit, changing us, changing our affections, our desires to pursue The theological term is justification, right? And then the second half of that is now that we're in Christ, we're pursuing Christ-likeness. That's the, the, the second big theological term we think about is sanctification, right? And that's, that's what disciples, discipleship is about. Follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy and us to do, to emulate his example, to follow him. Fully known is the word here, diligently tracing out step by step. Was Paul perfect? Perhaps you have a Paul in your life. They're not perfect. But we see the progression. We see multiple steps forward, even if there's a step back, right? What's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? Perfection? No. But repentance. It's repentance. So in some sense, we're all hypocrites, right? But by the grace of God, we are moving forward in Christ-likeness, and that's sanctification. One day, the, the hope that we have, the promise that we have, is that we will all be glorified, either when God takes us home or Christ returns, and we long for that day. So we're to be dedicated to discipleship. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. And this is a call to, to Timothy to be fully known. So what are we following exam- exactly? So we see that we're following Paul's teaching or doctrine. So we see this here in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. So let's just unpack this a little bit here. You know, they say, Right living starts with right thinking. And that's where we, we see, and we're going to talk more here momentarily, about the, the word of God washing over us, right? Hopefully many of you are in your quiet times throughout the week, and you're coming here to be challenged by the word of God. And as we hear and respond to the word of God, we want to leave differently. And it's the word of God that washes over us and molds us and conforms us to the image of Christ, Paul says, also follow my conduct. This is the manner of life, how he lived. His ways, which are in Christ, are to be emulated. 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, he sent Timothy to remind them of the ways in Christ. If you've got your Bible there, open to Philippians 3.7-14, and let's read about Paul's aim in life. Paul's aim in life. What, what did he exist for? Remember, Paul was radically transformed on the road to Damascus. He went from being Saul to Paul. So Philippians 3, 7 to 14, helps us understand what this guy, Paul, was all about. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." That's what Paul's all about. That's his aim in life, his purpose, of which he said he never swerved. If you're taking notes, you could write down Galatians 1. I'm not going to take us there. But it also talks about Paul's purpose or aim in life. So also Paul's faith. This is his trust in God and faith in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, what we believe. Remember, this is the same Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans. If you've never gone through and studied the book of Romans, you want to take time in your spiritual journey to glean the incredible truths and principles that Paul wrote in Romans. So as we follow Paul, as we follow our own uh, disciple and be disciples who are making disciples, we're following Paul's example here. He's talking about his teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, And then he talks about his patience, or also long-suffering. It's not a word that we use very often, but this is directed at many, many adversaries. Remember Paul, when he was Saul? He was persecuting the church. He had this license to kill, right? The, The Jewish leaders had commissioned him to go find these Christ followers and kill them for being heretics. And of course, on that road to Damascus, his life radically changed. And now he was on the receiving side of that persecution. So he had many, many enemies, and the patience or long-suffering is directed at the many adversaries that he had, especially those among his own people, Romans 9.3. Then his love. We're following Paul's love or charity. Of course, we just talked about 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. This is the love that he wrote about that never fails. Next, we see Paul's steadfastness or patience. And this is where we see him bear the most painful suffering as a consequence for his work for Christ. He writes extensively throughout his letters, but even here in 2 Timothy, he was persecuted and afflicted not merely were his plans thwarted to share the gospel, and to teach and preach. Not only were his hopes baffled, but his friends alienated him and his enemies opposed him. But in addition to all of that, he endured incredible physical suffering, stoning, scourging, imprisonment. And throughout all of it, Paul displayed a noble readiness to endure persecution. I mean, I'm just, I'm going to be honest with you, that blows my mind. That blows my mind. The very freedoms that we were just talking about, the very um, rights that we have to worship and to believe what we believe, we just, in in, in the United States of America, we just don't fully appreciate that persecution. Has anybody ever subscribed to Voice of the Martyrs? It's a great reminder. This is a ministry raising awareness of the persecuted church around the world to us because we need that reminder. We need that reminder to pray for the persecuted church. Persecution didn't just happen 2,000 years ago to the Apostle Paul, but it still happens around the world today. 
and may we be mindful of that persecution. Because Paul goes on to say, we are to live this godly life in Christ Jesus. And do you see that? There's a promise there. If you look at verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We start to see hints of that here in the United States. As our culture has rejected much of biblical Christianity, including what does it mean to be uh, a male or a female, or, or what is marriage, um, and just all kinds of evil and wickedness, I, I sense that in our culture there will be a greater and greater hostility towards Bible-believing Christians who believe contrary to what our culture celebrates and, um, and pursues. But you know what Paul said? related to that persecution. He said to Timothy, you know what I've gone through, and in all, God was with me and kept me. And he'll be with you too. Turn over to John 15. Jesus also talks about this persecution. Just a couple more comments on this. John 15, 18 and 19. Jesus is talking about the the hatred of the world. Again, this is 2,000 years ago, and we shouldn't expect it to be any different today. Jesus says, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So there's a promise of persecution for those who follow Christ. We've looked at this description from 2 Timothy 3 of what hypocrisy looks like infiltrating the church. We've talked about what it means to be dedicated to discipleship as we follow Paul who's following Christ. And now our third point is being devoted to Scripture. So verses 14 through 17, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. I don't think everybody here this morning uh, has grown up in a Christian home like me. So much that I take for granted, knowing that from an early age, my parents took me to church and uh, I remember memorizing Awana verses um, so that by the time the Lord saved me when I was 19 years old, it was a light bulb moment. All of those scripture verses that I'd memorized, the Lord had been stacking up like kindling and then ignited. Praise God for that. Some of you have not, some of you do not have that heritage. You did not grow up in a Christian home. I like to think of this as a, just a quick reminder for those of us who are parents to train up our children in the way that they should go. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9 really quick here. Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9. Of course, it also brings to our mind Ephesians 6. But let me just read this for you. Deuteronomy 
Ephesians 6, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments. There's the purpose, right? Why are we doing this? Why are we passing along this? These sacred writings that you may fear the Lord your God. Verse 3, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. It's a little bit of a promise there, huh? And that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There you go. Taking these sacred writings and passing them on to the next generation. For those of you who have young children, parents, that is one of the greatest discipleship opportunities you can enjoy or the the discipleship responsibilities that you have are the little ones in your home. So here, as we're talking about being devoted to Scripture, continue in what you have learned. This is endurance. Paul is is calling or challenging Timothy. Who taught you? Parents, pastors, friends, mentors? Who taught you? It's a good word just to stop and say thank you, even as Pastor Allen's coming back, because he so faithfully opens the Scriptures and challenges us and teaches us these sacred writings It's a spiritual discipline, actually. Don Whitney wrote a great book, I think, about all the time, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. And there's a whole section that talks about Bible intake. And that's that's what we're talking about here, is preaching of the word, like we're all here doing this morning, is hearing the preaching of the word, reading your Bible throughout the week, meditating on it, studying it, digging digging deeper. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, we were at summer camp. The, The theme was Be Ready. Is there any youth here today? Anyone at, uh, at Clarity Camp a couple weeks ago? Anybody? Yeah, here we go. Be ready was the theme. It's actually very appropriate to the passage here this morning. And uh, we were in a session talking about discipleship, and a young lady said, you know what, I think of uh, reading my Bible as kind of like raking leaves. And so she, she actually, she was like, she was practicing raking leaves. And, 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 and you can keep raking, Right? You get it? You can keep raking as you would keep reading. But then to dig deeper into the earth, into the soil, and pulling up the, the nuggets and the, the jewels, the, the content that you're receiving from the Scriptures, and then studying them. And studying the Scriptures is kind of looking at multiple perspectives around the biblical truths that we find in the Scriptures. I thought that was a helpful helpful illustration to bring to life the different types of Bible intake, and then what does that look like in my life? So back in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is that two-sided coin of the Great Commission. The good news that sinners can be reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, what's the big deal about this book? Friends, this is inspired revelation 
from the one true and living God. Friends, this is God's word to us. This is how he's chosen to reveal himself to us. Verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Remember we talked about that mission statement, Colossians 1.28, to be mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's what we're working towards by God's grace and with the spirit indwelling us. Let's look at this really quick. All scripture. So we believe that the original manuscripts of the word of God so it wasn't in English, and it's not the King James Version. Some of you get that. Um, all Scripture is inspired by God. Wayne Grudem says this, the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each state of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. This inspiration applies to the written word, which is infallible and inerrant in the original autographs or manuscripts. When Scripture speaks, we believe God speaks. These are the oracles of God. So let's just unpack this really quickly here. Profitable for teaching. This is divine instruction for spiritual maturity, right? Colossians 1.28. For reproof, this is for wrong behavior or wrong belief. For correction, this is restoration of something to its proper condition. Scripture not only corrects wrong behavior, but guides the way back to restoration. Remember Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's for training in righteousness, for godly behavior, competence, that we are capable of doing everything one is called to do, which is to worship God. And then we're equipped for every good work. Verse 17. Here, generally speaking, the man of God relates to any person that is indwelt by the Spirit, growing in Christ-likeness. These good works could include the demands of, of godly ministry and righteous living. These words and life purpose have motivated many a Christian to serve generously, to alleviate pain, suffering, and evil in this present age, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to disciple people towards this Christ-likeness. So we've talked about this description of difficulty. Be ready, be vigilant, be on the lookout for those characteristics. We are to be dedicated to discipleship. Friends, I just ask you, do you have three relationships in your life? Who's your Paul? Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Timothy? May we not be cul-de-sacs where we're hearing the word of God and keeping it to ourselves, as James talks about, James 1, but may we be doers of the word. May we be devoted to scripture and doers of the word. Friends, this is a call to worship God in every area of our life. We're to be ready, we're to be making disciples, we're to continue in what we've learned, loving God, loving people. I want to leave you with a story. I was trying to think of someone in history that inspires us. And we talk about these good works. What are these good works? I gave you a little bit of sampling. 
someone who's sharing the gospel, right? Friends, this week, I hope that you have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone who needs to hear it. We're messengers, right? God's not given you the power of saving people, but he's called you to be messengers. May you identify some of those relationships in your life, a Paul, a Barnabas, a Timothy. But these good works can also be demonstrating acts of love and acts of service to others. Maybe you need to serve here at your church. Maybe you're volunteering at the local pregnancy center. Maybe you're just loving your neighbor and taking in their trash can. It can be so simple. So I was trying to think of a story to illustrate this um, in history, and I came across the story of Florence Nightingale. I've heard of her. She's uh, the founder of modern nursing. Really, really quite a remarkable story. And she did this good work because of her love for Christ. Florence Nightingale was born in 1820 in Italy to a wealthy British family. Her friends called her Flo. She served tirelessly as a nurse. There she was known as Miss Nightingale or the lady with the lamp. By an early age, she was caring for those who were sick. By 17, she was serving as a nurse. And at this time, nurses had a bad reputation. But she quickly learned the skill. She learned the importance of sanitary conditions, which was critical to reduce the rapid spread of diseases and infections. And after working for a year, she was promoted to superintendent of the hospital and completely revolutionized uh, nursing at that hospital and gained significant uh, notoriety, at least the attention there, that she had made these changes in the hospital. And, And hospitals were nasty places back then nasty places. In October 1853, the British Empire went to war against the Russians over control of the Ottoman Empire, which was falling apart at this time. Thousands of British soldiers were sent to the Black Sea, and many ended up injured in military hospitals. The British Secretary of War recruited Miss Nightingale to recruit a corps of nurses to serve the military base in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. Florence Miss Nightingale, the lady with the lamp, would move about at night caring for injured troops. She worked herself so hard. She was frail and sickly herself. During this Crimean War, many, many lives were saved due to the improvements in health care that she had led. She was motivated by her love for her Savior. She was motivated to do these good works that we're called to do. Let's pray. Father God, we remember the difference between believers and unbelievers, not perfection, but rather repentance. Lord, may your word fill us and motivate us and drive us to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to be salt and light in this wicked age, to pray fervently, that Lord, that you would be at work, that you would restrain evil. Lord, may we be vigilant to watch for hypocrisy in your church. This dire list of characteristics, may that not be said of us. And when we see them, may we confront them with biblical truth. 
Lord, we're grateful to live in this country, and we pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, hopefully different as a result of the preaching of your word, Lord, may we look for ways to share the gospel, to disciple, to demonstrate the love of Christ, that agape love, selfless, sacrificial, others-focused, and that may our good works be worship unto you. May our good works be an open door that people would see there's something different about that person. And Lord, may you be glorified in all that we do say and think. Amen.